You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. I'm, I'm an advocate. Uh, uh, Nixon uh, had what I believe is the, the most creative domestic policy. I think his foreign affairs victories stand on their own, but he had a very, very creative domestic policy, I think, Scholars will come to believe that, but if you if you study presidencies, uh, Stephen Skronik has this uh, unbelievable analysis of uh, uh, presidencies over time, and, and his issue, he thinks the presidency is best at causing change, but the success has to do with whether the president serves at the beginning, middle, or end of a regime. And what's most important is a regime, and it would be unfair to summarize Skronik, but uh, he's got good books. Uh, picture a moon dial on a clock. That's the beginning, the fullness, and the decline of a regime. If you're president at the very beginning and you cause change in the, in, with the regime, it's brilliant. And he felt that Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, a- a- Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan fit that. Uh, if, you're, if you come second and you're to perfect the regime, you fail because you can't be perfect. And his best example is Lin- Lyndon Johnson. If you come at the end of the regime, you're just a failure. Uh, Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter. But woe unto you if you're an aberration and you're elected and you really aren't a part of the regime. And Skronik's point is those presidents get impeached. <laughs> Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. And what we want to do in this hour is introduce you to Jeff Shepard. He is um, a gentleman that grew up in California, went to Whittier College, ended up working on the Nixon uh, in the Nixon administration, and uh, went on to be a part of Richard Nixon's defense team. And what I thought I would do, he did some interviews with, with uh, Hugh Hewitt, and uh, I was going to let him explain his biography and how he uh, became part of the Nixon administration, the Nixon defense team. Uh, in this hour, I just want to introduce you to Jeff Shepard because his story is so important to the one we're going to be telling about Richard Nixon in 1974 as the Watergate scandal engulfed his administration. I came of age in the mid-1950s in rural Orange County. I'm a 1958 graduate of the Irvine Elementary School when Irvine was six buildings, a wide spot in the road. There wasn't even a stop sign on 101 going to San Diego. Uh, uh, There were 30 kids in my class, uh, Marine kids from El Toro Marine Base and farmers' kids uh, uh, from tenant farmers because Myford Irvine was still alive and he wouldn't sell the land. It was all orange groves, all orange groves and and a Marine base. And the corner drugstore was 14 miles away. So, I mean, you, middle of nowhere. Uh, uh, I then went to uh, Long Beach Wilson High School, much, much bigger high school, and from there to Whittier College, uh, 
that was 45 minutes away, good Quaker school. Nixon had gone there. Nixon, at that point, I started in 1962, uh, uh, he had lost the race for the presidency in 1960 to Jack Kennedy and lost the race for the governorship uh, uh, in 1962. So he was the former vice president. He quit politics, eventually moved to New York, uh, uh, and he was Whittier College's most prominent graduate, but because he was the former vice president. And he was very loyal to Whittier. He was very proud of having graduated from Whittier. Uh, Uniquely, he was admitted to Harvard, but he couldn't afford to go. He got the uh, Orange County uh, uh, Republican scholarship to to Harvard, but his family couldn't spare him from the the, uh, grocery store. So he he went to Whittier. Uh, In my junior year, uh, at college, I, I'm a late bloomer. I, mean, I, I was uh, shy and, and, and uh, retiring and uh, 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 bashful. Uh, I, I uh, got elected student body president, uh, and I won the Richard Nixon Scholarship, which was presented by the Republican Women's Club of Whittier. The scholarship dean called me up and said, "You you uh, you you won the scholarship. Uh, you need to go to this lunch." And I said, "I I didn't apply." He said, no, no, they let the college pick the recipient. We picked you. Uh, 250 bucks, Jeff. Cash. Go. So I went to the luncheon. And I think to everyone's surprise, Richard Nixon came also from New York. Now, uh, uh, he was really out because he convinced Bob Hope to be the convention, the con- convocation speaker at graduation. So he uh, needed to be there. So he yes. was in town anyway. So I sat next to the former vice president. And on this side was this gentleman who was the L.A. County chairman of the Republican Party, Bob Finch, who later comes back as a, a, a secretary, secretary of H.E.W. And, and Education uh, and Welfare uh, in those uh, days. Yeah, yeah, Health, Education, and Welfare. And then uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor of, of California. I mean, I wasn't in the state politics. but uh, And so I talked with former Vice President Nixon. I didn't have time to be nervous. I didn't know he's going to be there. And he dropped out of politics. We talked about Whittier and what Whittier meant to him. And he gave a speech to the women. There was no press or anything. And he talked about how, how much Whittier made this big difference. And then he starts talking about our respective races for student body president. And I didn't talk to him about it. I don't know how he found out. But he said what, what was key was in both of our races, our issue was working with the administration to accomplish something. And what he had done very famously was resolve the dancing issue. The Quakers wouldn't let you dance on campus. And what Nixon worked out was the use of a building one block off campus. Yeah, this is detailed in his memoirs, but I got to get you to law school. So okay, pick up so, the pace, Jack. So uh, uh, I graduate from Whittier in 1966. I go off uh, to Harvard Law School. I aced the LSATs. They were running a program, even if you came from a little known school and you really did well on the LSATs, uh, you got a scholarship. So I went, I went to Harvard. What did you do in the summers that you were at HLS? I was a law clerk for Lytton Industries. Lytton Industries was one of the most prominent uh, conglomerates in America. They had a headquarters in downtown uh, Beverly Hills, the former uh, Music Corporation of America headquarters building. Uh, My mother went to church with a guy who turned out to be their general counsel. And her kid had gotten into Harvard, and you know how mothers are. She was talking on, you know, how wonderful her kid was. And the guy said, well, you know, maybe we should employ him. You ought to send him down. 
and he was the general counsel of Litton Industries. So all three summers. Now, before that, I'd always worked outside. I'd always worked with my hands. The construction jobs paid better. And I worked every single summer from the time I was 11 right through. But during law school, the first summer before I even got to law school, I was a law clerk for Litton Industries. So you graduated from Harvard Law School in 1969. I assume that the convulsions on the undergraduate campus, I arrived there in 1974, five years later, they were over. The war was over. Uh, But I assume the convulsions on the undergraduate campus of those years related to Vietnam did not touch uh, Langton Hall, where Harvard Law School resides. Well, not quite. Not quite. Uh, uh, The kids shut the school down, uh, and that was on the lower campus. They came up and tried to get the law school to do a sympathy strike, sympathy strike. Uh, And they chose Saturday morning to come to the eight o'clock class. uh, And it was taught by Phil Arita, uh, an expert on antitrust, a neat guy. And so a couple students were in the, not students, they were interlopers from down below. And they got up at the beginning of class and said, we have to do this. We have to sympathize. We have to. Uh, uh, go go on strike here at, at, at the law school, follow me. And these three kids walked out of class. If you're going to get up at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning to study antitrust law, you're not walking out <laughs> because some kids are upset down the Lord. So it didn't do any good. All right, I, so, so you graduate in 69. I graduate it's, it's with a, honors. With honors. I graduate with honors. Where did you go to work? Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, I had told too many friends that if Nixon won... You know, because we were close, we had lunch together. Uh, I was going to, I was going to go to Washington to help. I had no interest in politics. Uh, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer, and 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 he won. So there was this program called White House Fellowships, where you could apply and you could go down. They're now famous. Study. They were not so famous. They then. were not so famous then. The thing coming out of law school, you remember, you went to law school, was clerkships, working for a judge. That's where the competition was, and I I applied for this White House Fellowship, uh, and. And, and we, we hit the th- three reasons I, I think I emerged. thousand people applied. And they got it down to 15, and here I am. Well, nobody else had a personal scholarship from the president of the United States. Very few people had personal experience with the conglomerate uh, phenomenon. And I, ha- I could talk about, you know, Litton Industries and all these people and everything. And when they did the great upset... Uh, uh, I, I was working for this professor, uh, uh, Clark Bice, who's the model for the paper chase. Uh, in fact, I was the model for the kid who gets wiped out in the paper chase. But I went to work for him, and he was chairman of the student faculty committee at the law school to deal with the student upsets. What's so different about this, Jeff Shepard, is that White House fellows today are typically between 35 and 40. Yes. They've accomplished a lot in their life. You're right. Yes. Uh, I went from Michigan Law School to the D.C. Circuit to work for two Nixon judges, Roger Robb and George McKinnon. A very prestigious appointment. But I those indeed. are, that's the way you went. You wouldn't dream of applying for a White nope. House fellowship in 1983 nope. when I graduated or in 2020 when we were talking. You wouldn't dream of that because you're not even eligible. You're not in the right. game. Right. So you're a kid. When, oh, you you get, when you get your White House Fellowship, yep. what does your White House Fellowship send you to do? Well, they had real trouble with that because I didn't have much to add. Uh, uh, they sent me to the Treasury. I asked for Treasury. They were, they were working on the Tax Reform Act of 1969. I'd taken every tax course that the law school offered, and I thought I could help. And it passed before I got there. 
but nobody else ever asked for treasury because it was so difficult to fit in. And they, there I was. Some of us might say it's so damn dull, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> economics being the dismal science. Uh, one of the things they did, I had kind of in thirds, uh, I was assigned to Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker at that time was not famous. He was undersecretary for monetary affairs. And uh, uh, he, he the third ranking guy in the whole treasury. And I sat right outside his office. He had three secretaries because he worked all the time. There was always a financial crisis. And then there was Paul's office. I saw every memo coming in, every memo coming out. And I sat in on every meeting. And what months are these roughly? Uh, this is uh, uh, halfway through uh, 1970. So 1970 until when are you at Treasury? No, I start in uh, 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 September of 1969, and I go through to September of 1970 when I join the White House staff. And that's where I want to go. In September of 1970, the war is still raging. We are not close to the Paris Peace Accord. Absolutely true. The mobilization against the war is convulsing Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, the country is still divided against itself. Famously, Nixon, uh, Nixon is defying the law that Lincoln laid down, cannot stand. He's trying to bring it back together again. Yes. And where do you land in the Nixon White House in 1970? And who are the major characters who will later emerge as Watergate central figures? And what is your relationship with them in 1970? OK, uh, we have a common theme. My life is a series of flukes that happen to work out. Mom goes to church with a general counsel. Uh, Nixon gives me, comes to sh- give me this scholarship. When we did the orientation for White House fellowships, the president's counsel spoke, who at that time was John Ehrlichman. Nobody else much cared because they weren't lawyers. But he came from Seattle. That's where I wanted to go uh, to practice law. Uh, and I sat next to him at lunch. And we chit-chatted about Seattle law firms. During the course of the year, John became very important. He was named head of domestic affairs. Now, Jeff Shepard would end up going over to uh, the defense team. He'd work for uh, Fred Bazart, who who has something in common with me. Mr. Bazart was a staff member for Senator Strom Thurmond, and I was a volunteer for Senator Strom Thurmond's final campaign considerably later <laughs> in 1996, 95 and 96. But uh, Mr. Bazart would be the, initially the leader of President Nixon's defense team, and that is something that uh, that – Jeff Shepard would be the assistant on. And what I want to do here is give you a chance to see how Mr. Shepard came to look back on this case and get interested in what actually happened, which he will explain at a forum that they had at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library when he was asked a question from an audience member. You were a bit frustrated with the Watergate scandal. And I'm curious when... Um, the moment in time in your life, um, when did that change? From when, you know, what was the revealing document or the revealing element that made you realize that the president um, was being falsely accused? Re- restore my faith. Not why did I lose faith? That's the smoking gun yeah. take. Re- restoration. I was on his defense team. We were gearing up to defend the president in the House in a Senate trial. And we believed, we felt the prosecutors believed, everything turned on what Nixon did on Wednesday, March 21st, 1973, when John Dean came in and said, 
You know, there's a cancer on the presidency. It's growing, it's compounding. You're going to have to make some pretty important decisions very soon, and you don't know what's been going on. We're being blackmailed. Nixon and Dean have both maintained consistently that that's the first time he ever told Richard Nixon about any specifics of the cover-up. That's where the battle was going to be joined. But then out of nowhere, that's March 21st, 1973, out of nowhere came this smoking gun tape from June 23rd, 1972, right after the Watergate break-in. Nobody knew about it. There was nothing else having to do with it. It was a big surprise to the lawyers. Lawyers made a mistake. To my great shame, the lawyers misinterpreted the tape, demanded it be released. It was, it destroyed Nixon's credibility, and he resigned three days after its release. But that juxtaposition of we were all geared up to fight here, and this thing popped out. And, and what started it was doubt about that thing. And I started learning stuff from other authors and other uh, uh, analysts who said that that wasn't designed to cover up. That was designed to protect the identity of two major donors who happened to be Democrats. Uh, and and I, it took me a lot of time of research, and I was ready to make that case when John Dean published a book in 2014 called The Nixon Defense. Uh, and, and a footnote at page 55, if you care to look it up, he says, you know, funny thing, the smoking gun's been misunderstood all along. Uh, his lawyers misinterpreted it. It was really to protect these donors. And if Nixon had known, he could have lived again to fight another day. I'm quoting, in short, the smoking gun was shooting blanks. So I went back, forget that, forget the smoking gun. It was a mistake. I'm sorry, but it was a mistake. Come back forward to March 21st. Now, I transcribed the tapes. This is a long answer, Chris, but you asked. I transcribed the tapes. They are hard to transcribe. These are not easy conversations. The audio quality is, is uh, terrible. So when you're transcribing them, you're reaching for the words. You're trying to get inside the head of the speaker. Where are they going with this conversation? Now, to be fair, the initial cut at those transcriptions was done by Rose Woods, uh, the president's secretary, and her assistant, Marge Acker. Uh, but Fred Bazart told me that we're turning these tapes over, and we've got to know what's on them. You can follow the conversation. They probably couldn't. But we can't be surprised if there's something on those tapes. So get every word you can. Well, that's hard work. And I believe there are very, very few people who have listened to the tapes. And there aren't very many who have really studied the transcripts. But in my view, and I'll go up against anybody with this view, He's told about the blackmail on Wednesday, March 21st, by John Dean. The and, the, and the answer of that meeting is get John Mitchell down here from New York. Let's figure out what on earth to do. They meet again that evening, and they're still, they don't know what to do. Mitchell's coming down the next day. They think Mitchell's guilty as he can be, uh, and the goal is get Mitchell to take a fall. That's how we're going to get out from under this. But the next day, Mitchell's not interested in taking a fall. 
And what they come up with is we'll send John Dean to Camp David. It's right there on the tape. He will write a report. He'll write a report of what he told me the day before. And I will use that report to call for a new investigation, and I won't claim executive privilege. My staff will have to go back. Now, it's a little unclear on the tape whether they mean back to the Irvin Committee, where it will be public, or back to a grand jury where it will be private. And there's no question they don't want that report to say too much. Okay, put it as favorably as you can, but there's no doubt on that tape Nixon is going to call for a renewed investigation and not claim executive privilege. That's when it rebuilt my faith in the president. Picture, this is unfair to President Nixon, Picture this kid in knickers raised by a devout Quaker mother who says, now, Dickie, don't lie. The truth is always going to come out. Don't dig yourself in deeper. And it was a spasm response from the president. People don't understand that. When he used to talk about Alger Hiss, the, the communist at, 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 from Harvard, it wasn't, and I beat him. It was, Hiss was a communist in the 1930s. The statute had passed. What got him in trouble was he lied about it. That's what brought him down. And, and, and Nixon, the furthest thing from his mind would be to lie. So he's told this terrible thing. His staff, he didn't want to send him to jail, but his reaction is, we got to have a new investigation. That's a long answer to your question, my friend. Next. It was an answer, and it was good. Thank you. So I, th- I hope that the point that I'm trying to make by letting you listen to Mr. Shepard and have him explain to you uh, his his position in the Nixon administration and and his opinion about this case is to show to you that he is not a conspiracy theorist. He is not some kind of a nut job the way a lot of conspiracy theorists that you have heard through the years can be. This is a serious man who had a serious role in the Nixon administration. And uh, he did an oral history with the Nixon Presidential Library that I thought would be worth listening to on all the different roles that he had in the administration other than as a member of the defense team. He was involved when Native Americans seized Alcatraz prison out in the San Francisco Bay. He was involved in the in the work to get them out of there. Another set of American uh, Native Americans uh, were involved with seizing a federal bu- building in Washington, D.C. He was also involved in that. And then there are several other policy uh, things to do with the FBI and other things because he was a, a lawyer and you know, on the domestic front <clears throat> about policy. And in this oral history, he goes through it with the presidential library director, Tim Naftali. And I thought this would be a good way of showing you that this was a serious man and a serious player in the Nixon administration. To recall that period, if you could, between the fall of 1970 and the removal of the Indians in June of 71, there there are people in the government advocating action. Oh, yes. But nothing happens until June yes. of 71. How do you explain that? Um, do you know Vince Lombardi's uh, the discussion of the forward pass? Uh, he he ran a, a on-the-ground offense, three yards in a cloud of 
dirt. And what he said about the forward pass was only three things can happen, catched, dropped, or, or uh, incomplete, and two of them are bad. So only three things can happen, two of them are bad. The Alcatraz situation was very much like that. It was loose. Uh, you, you couldn't get purchase on the island. You, you, you normally, if you're really going to do something and you don't want to lose police officers or soldiers, you have to have overwhelming force. And, and the, the uh, likelihood of a violent confrontation was great. And since it wasn't hurting anyone, it was not an active boiling sore. It was, a, it was difficult, but there was, there was never any immediacy. Now, we got fed up at the end, and, and, and we felt that the, the people, uh, poor Lynn Garman and, and Brad Patterson, whose job it was to deal with uh, 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 upset people, that, that they were losing credibility because this had gone on for so long. The other thing that happened with the delay was public support for the Indians faded. Uh, this lighthouse in the center of San Francisco Bay was rather critical as a navigation aid, Two tankers had collided under the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was played that, while it didn't happen at Alcatraz, it could have because this key navigational aid was inoperative because the Indians had, uh, had broken in and, and, and wrecked the lighthouse. They were looking for confrontation. We wouldn't give it to them. And, and to some extent, delay postponed the downside. So in, in, in that instance, it worked. But was it was that a uh, was that an intentional policy choice, or was that a consequence of of just a lack of consensus on what to do? I, I think I would go in between. There was never Nixon keyed off everything that he did, the action forcing event. It was code. Why do I have to decide this now? Why must I use? Uh, uh, my political capital on this. And there was never a sufficient action-forcing event to, to go. It, it doesn't mean the Department of Justice wasn't upset. The U.S. Attorney out in San Francisco was beside himself. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean that there weren't advocates. But remember, when we created the Domestic Council, and at the same time we turned the Bureau of the Budget into the Office of Management and Budget, mm. we had consolidated not just policy decision into the White House staff itself, but virtually every major decision. It followed communications. Your cabinet officers no more announced what they thought. They needed to clear it first. And, and we, we have that today. We've had it with every presidency ever since. Uh, but it was new to Nixon for your researchers. You need to go back and look at reorganization plan number two of 1970 which, when introduced, lays out the rationale for this, lays out what the president hoped to accomplish by these two major changes. But I, my view is the creation of the Domestic Council, now it's called the Domestic Policy Council, and the Office of Management and Budget, where it wasn't much budget, it was what you were supposed to do with the money of the management, is the foundation of the modern presidency. And it's the consolidation into the White House. Well, the before the Department of Justice might have moved on its own. But no more. No more. This is a decision. We don't like the president to be known as the decision maker. If it doesn't work, the staff has to take the fall. If it works, the president gets credit. But everything came to the White House. 
How far up it went within the White House was a function of how confident people were. Uh, I don't have any way of knowing, except on your tapes, whether Ehrlichman really discussed this with the president. Uh, uh, Bud's memo that I drafted on June 10th recommends to Ehrlichman that we move. I don't know if Ehrlichman went to the Oval Office or outside the Oval Office, the tapes don't contain everything, uh, of how much base he, he felt he had to touch. That's, that's an unknown to me from, from my vantage point. Um, let's move to an action-forcing event. Um, November 1972, the Indians take the Bureau of Indian Affairs. November yes. 3rd. Yes. 72. This is right around, this is the end of the campaign, right before uh, Election Day. Yes. Um, this is a problem. This is an occupation, the occupation of a federal building in the, the District of Columbia. Yes. What do you recall of that um, event? Quite what? a confrontation. Uh, 500 Indians. The American Indian Movement, the Trail of Broken Treaties, they're coming to negotiate something. Uh, and then they decide not to leave. The bureaucrats are ready to leave, and the Indians weren't. Uh, and so they took over. I don't know that they came in to take over the building, but they took over the building. Uh, it was a confrontation in your face, uh, uh, unacceptable. Uh, again, vast differences of opinion. Uh, I, I don't remember this. There's nothing I wrote on it. I looked in my, my files. Uh, but they were there for from the, the uh, 3rd to the 10th. Uh, to the night. They left on the night. Uh, let me start with the end, because I, I, I think the end is very, very instructive. In the end, we paid them to leave. I don't remember whether it was 100 bucks per family or 500 because the numbers have changed, but it was enough gas to get home. That was the theory, but we bribed them to leave. Now, during the course of the week, there was all kinds of things we could do to get them out, but again, it was going to be a violent confrontation. The first choice was Jerry Wilson, the District of Columbia Chief of Police. We said, well, go take them out. You're Chief of Police. You got 5,000 cops or whatever it was. Go take them out. And he'd been chief for a long time and, and had grown up in the department. And he said, not on your life. We'll have dead bodies if I send in my police officers. They're, they're, they're not, we don't know what they have or if they have rifles or something else. They may, may not even get to the front door before they get cut down. You know, we didn't have SWAT teams in those days. And he said, unless you want blood on your hands before the election, you do not want to try to remove these people. We, Brad Patterson tells me we sent him over to negotiate and it put his life in jeopardy because they weren't going to let him leave after the negotiations. I, of course, wouldn't go in. I was in charge of law enforcement. Law enforcement had worked with Alcatraz. Why wouldn't it work here? Demand answers. Well, if the chief of police is reluctant to go in, how about the Army? They've got a SWAT team. And so we talked to the Army about, you know, bringing in armored personnel carriers. And, and you know, there's this law. It's called the Posse Comitatus Act, and it says you can't use the Army for domestic disturbances unless all kinds of conditions. And we didn't need them. You know, civilian rule is at, at risk and all, and, you know, the police hasn't worked. And, and the other thing the Army wanted, strangely, the Army said, if we do something, we do it with overwhelming force. We don't just send up an armored personnel carrier to the front door and off, off lead five or six guys into the cameras. 
we bring a thousand guys because overwhelming force it, 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 under the Bush administration we call that shock and awe we don't lose soldiers if the opposition realizes they are so outgunned and so outnumbered uh, uh, resistance is useless or we don't go in well we didn't need that either you know, we did not need that kind of confrontation. So, in the end, and the election must have occurred, so whatever publicity there was, they were paid off and they left. We discovered two things. Just show you how you accumulate wisdom. One thing was they kept all the kids on the top floor where there was a library, and they turned it into a nursery. The other thing, close to the library were five-gallon jerry cans of gasoline uh, discovered up there. Now, you could conclude from this that some people in the organization were willing to torch their kids and have an absolute massacre to make the point. You could conclude that it was just fluke that the gas was up there near the kids. Certainly, the parents of the kids didn't know the gas was up there. They wouldn't let the kids go up there. But with 500 people, you have crazies who want the confrontation so badly they don't care who gets hurt. Uh, and if we had rushed the building, we would have had not just a couple of dead bodies. We would have had a massacre. Uh, and, and it would have been highly, highly, we would talk about it. I mean, they, it would make the Kent State situation look like a birthday party. And, and wiser heads prevailed. It was handled uh, to the great credit of all, but to me... Most credit goes to Jerry Wilson uh, because he was the one who said to this eager White House staff and, and, and folks who wanted to, to deal with this, deal with this right now, let's go meet the confrontation, uh, uh, the, the same attitude that let the moratoriums come in and let the, the protesters come in and go out uh, uh, prevailed on the BIA. Now, the other, the other thing, the, the, there was $700,000 worth of damage. They trashed all the records. The building was closed for a year. I mean, the government cost of tolerating this was immense. I still think it was the right decision. I have to tell you, I did not think it was the right decision at the time. Uh, before Jerry Wilson spoke up, I was a fire eater. I, mean, I really thought we needed to do something. Uh, and and Jerry's, well, Jerry was very persuasive. Uh, and and it, as, as events turned out, he was very correct. But did you have a series of crisis meetings? Is that how this Oh, yes. Reserved? Oh, yes. And, and always at the White House. I mean, because the White House was going to make the decision. The Secretary of the Interior was not going to make the decision. And the D.C. police, in, in those days, the president appointed the mayor. So it was our District of Columbia. We appointed the chief of police. We really thought highly of the chief of police. So it was an extension of federal, uh, the chief of police was an extension of federal power. Absolutely. Point. Okay. Absolutely. Um, did you have a sense from, uh, from Ehrlichman what he preferred at the time? No, I have no memory of John participating in the meetings. It would have been Bud who was orchestrating the meetings, and Bud would have uh, talked with John off camera. Because uh, Bud has told us that, that Kleindienst wanted action. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Wouldn't surprise me a bit, but but the, the the way the place worked, John would meet with the staff, but John very rarely sat in on the meeting with outsiders. He would with a cabinet officer, but pretty much you needed that extra layer of thought and protection before you got to John. 
so there were relatively few, not confrontational meetings, let's call them fact-gathering meetings and airings of opinion where John participated personally. Uh, it was Bud or Ed Morgan or, or, or John Whitaker uh, who did that, and then they would reduce it to writing for John to discuss with the president. And was the Interior Department's representative a Harrison Leash Lish at these uh, Indian meetings? The meetings. Uh, I, I'm sure you, Interior was represented. There, there was you 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 had to. It was their building, so it wasn't it wasn't going on behind their back. Uh, uh, I don't remember declining being at the meetings. Uh, but I have no specific memory. It would be much more likely it would be his deputy, Harlington Wood. Yeah, no, I was thinking of who might the uh, the interior. Secretary. Well, it could have been the solicitor. It could have been the the, the deputy assist, the deputy secretary. Uh, it, it certainly was not. Uh, I think Wally Hickel was still there. No, 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 no. Uh, who would who would have the secretary have been at that? Uh, the uh, well, I was thinking more of of who was in charge of Indian affairs at the. Uh, and in 1972, well, uh, for the, uh, that, for the Indian, uh, but that may not even have been high enough up. Was Bobby was Bobby Kilberg there? Bobby would have been included. Yeah. Bobby and Brad or or Lynn. She was the one who was also going into the building. Yes, she was. Uh, Bobby was on the domestic council staff. She was a White House fellow with me, my year, but assigned to the domestic council. Uh, uh, I have accused her, but she disowns this. Of, of majoring in Indian law when she was at Yale Law School. Uh, but she said, no, 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 she didn't do that. But she had a abiding personal interest in Indian affairs and was terribly influential in how Indian, uh, how the government's policy toward Indians was changed. Uh, and we, we, I, I think you've got it on tape with her, but the, the word was assimilation. The policy of the United States government for the previous 50 years was we work our way out of the Indian problem by dispersing them into society, moving them into the cities, breeding this, breeding Indians away. The Indians took it badly. They liked the reservation. They were a separate nation. It reached treaties with the United States, ignored in, in, in a lot of ex extent, but, but still treaties. And under Nixon, with Bobby and, and Len and Brad's input, and, and I think with Wally Hickel's input, the policy of assimilation was abandoned, and the government said, look, we've entered into these treaties, we need to treat these people as a separate nation and help them. They want to stay on the land, let them stay on the land. And, and that, I believe, remains until today, except sometimes the land includes casinos. <laughs> I'm always interested in how people change their minds. You talk about your own... Uh, thinking during the BIA occupation, mm -hmm. um, did you change your mind at at that time about the the utility of of an aggressive action? Uh, I think it was the discovery of the gasoline that caused me to have a massive reevaluation of the use of government power. Uh, uh, when you're involved with uh, uh, violent or near-violent dissidents. Uh, Waco, Texas, yeah. people died. Ruby Ridge, uh, uh, people died. I think it was the guy's wife up in Montana where there was, they were trying to take somebody who was a fugitive. Uh, 
this is unfair, but the Oklahoma City bombing was on the anniversary of Waco. I mean, it was, you know, and there are people on all aspects of the political spectrum that can convince themselves that this particular issue is worth dying for on a given day. But a week later, they may not feel that strongly. And, and you, you, you want law and order. The nation was headed toward anarchy. Nixon was elected on a law and order platform. You needed to reassert governmental control. Today, I may be wrong, but I was thinking about this on the train down, the idea of a hostile takeover is pretty remote. There aren't people sufficiently upset today that I think they would do it. But if you get into a situation where it becomes commonplace, and it became commonplace because of the opposition to the war, those tactics spilled over into lots of other things, then the government response, the use of power, has to be uh, uh, carefully constrained. Now, I was young. Uh, I believed in law and order. I was responsible for law enforcement. Uh, uh, I think it's terribly important that the idea that you won't be punished uh, uh, not be allowed. Uh, and in and, and, and the, the American Indian movement, the BIA takeover, they were not punished. Uh, they were paid off. But under the circumstances, upon reflection, that was the, the cooler head, heads prevailed. That was the wiser decision. It hurts. Sometimes there's no right decision. But as you said when we opened this topic, that was a decision that had to be made. We needed to get them out. We needed to, to get them out without bloodshed. Do you have any recollection of how much of a concern the Weathermen Underground were? Huge concern. Uh, Weathermen Underground, uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Remember, Patty Hearst was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, breaking into the armories and, and taking of uh, assault rifles. Uh, uh, no, it was a, it was a huge concern. Uh, uh, about who they were, what they were doing. We, we had trials. We had fugitives. Uh, you know, we couldn't... The, uh, the, when you're in full rebellion mode and you won't cooperate in our judicial system, uh, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to have trials because the individual starts screaming obscenities at the judge and it frequently turns out the judge isn't up to that kind of trial. Who's the uh, lawyer? Uh, William Kunstler. Kunstler. Kunstler uh, ended up as as the uh, the diabolical uh, uh, defender and and perfected ways, much like Sololinsky perfected ways of street protest. Kunstler perfected ways of uh, uh, avoiding convictions, uh, making the government, the issue, or the, uh, particularly with inner city juries, uh, uh, the two, two observations, and then when, when you have this degree of upset, it's, it's very, very hard on law enforcement. The police, in the great scheme of things, are responsible for maintaining and restoring order, not for gathering evidence to prosecute. So you have massive upsets. They herd everybody that's arrested into the stadium, you know, they keep them there for 24 or 48 hours. People are screaming about their rights. And then you process them out, but you almost never prosecute because you can't make a case under the exacting standards of our criminal law, 
which says, I'd rather let a hundred guilty people go free than convict one individual that's innocent. Well, under that situation, you aren't talking about group crimes. Uh, you're talking about an individual. But in violent city and public confrontations, the prosecution frequently doesn't work. So the police don't, aren't able to do it. The government is frustrated in how you, how you enforce when a substantial part of your own citizenry is rebelling. The other interesting thing, I didn't work on this at the time, but for the most part, all juries are liberal because federal juries exist only in large cities. And when they draw the jury pool, take, take Philadelphia, they don't bring people in from Wilkes-Barre to sit on that jury. That's a hardship. They draw the jury from in and around the city of Philadelphia, which tends to result in urban people sitting on the jury, and urban areas tend to be more liberal. So for the most part, particularly where you have a rebellion amongst poor people, you have a more than ordinarily sympathetic jury. District of Columbia might be an excellent example because it traditionally delivers an 85% Democratic majority, that's the voting pool from which the jury is selected. If by some fluke you were able to run some of these trials out in Utah or Idaho, and even then you're, you're hard-pressed to get above a 60% majority, you get different verdicts. Mm -hmm. But that's just not, that's not possible for the federal government. So you've got police who are far more interested in maintaining order and a jury system that doesn't seem to work for mass upset. So, so it's hard uh, 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 to really crack down on, on large street protests. Um, were you at, at all involved in, in working with the FBI on these kinds of issues, of, of, uh, ensuring that the White House had the kind of inf information it needed in advance of protest? No, the only thing that I did that blew up that involved the FBI um, occurs uh, in the course of the president's run for re-election in 1972. Uh, and just to recount it, uh, uh, a memo was sent uh, that I signed that said, uh, president's going to these places, we need to know uh, if there are law and order issues. And it was sent as a teletype by the FBI to FBI field offices, and and responses collected back, and that became public, and everybody ran for cover because it was looked looked like you were using the FBI for political purposes. Uh, this figures rather prominently in Pat Gray's book in Nixon's Web, because it blew up on his stay, and it's one of the few times my memos have become public. The memo was written to the Deputy Attorney General, which is perfectly proper. He's a political appointee. president has a perfect right to say, I need to be informed before I go to these places if there are issues that I should be aware of. The mistake within the Department of Justice was it descended to someone in the FBI who sent it out to the field offices. It should not have gone. But it gives you the example, to answer your question, 
in all of the time I was on the White House staff, I never met with the FBI except a courtesy interview with J. Edgar Hoover before he died uh, and maybe a meeting with Pat Gray on a ceremony, you know, where we're, we're coming in to see mm -hmm. the president in the Oval Office. All the substantive work we did was with presidential appointees at the Department of Justice. I worked, uh, in, in the beginning, I'm, I'm very, very junior. The first thing I did was a bill signing, the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. We signed it at the Department of Justice. So I did all the advance work. Mm -hmm. uh, no, there were advanced team. I did all the substantive work having to do with how that would, how that would operate. The advanced team did its own thing. The Secret Service did its own thing. But when the president leaves the White House, you know, there have got to be 200 people involved in even going to a department. Uh, uh, we I worked extraordinarily closely with uh, the Deputy Attorney General, uh, uh, Larry Silberman, because then I was Associate Director, uh, and, and his three direct reports all the time. And that's how you related to the Department of Defense. They found out information within the Department of Defense, excuse me, the Department of Justice, to bring back to you. But you'd never reach down uh, uh, to the FBI. Uh, uh, it, it was run in a certain way under J. Edgar Hoover uh, and in a different way under Pat Gray and then under uh, Clarence Kelly, the Kansas chief of police. Now, at the very top level, thanks to the tapes, we have a sense of the president and John Ehrlichman's frustration with J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. Did that any of that filter down to your level? Did you did you sense that Bud Krogh was frustrated with? Oh, with hugely, the, hugely. Uh, the Kennedys were terrified of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I think he reached retirement age under uh, Jack Kennedy, and that was exempted. Uh, he should have been let go under uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he wasn't. There was the the rumor uh, that politicians believed that he had these secret files. Turned out he did have these secret files. You had 2,000 agents, and they were the eyes of the night, and you're dealing with human beings. And Hoover loved human frailty, and he would collect and uh, distribute. Uh, and, and he, it, it appears, I mean, it seems rather obvious in retrospect, he, he grew more and more senile on the job, and, and, and the agency had... Uh, it was dictatorial agency. It was the only director the FBI had ever had. And whatever Hoover said was absolute law, well, power corrupts. And, and, and toward the end, uh, the FBI uh, uh, was not run properly. It would have been far better if he had retired when he reached retirement age. You'd have new leadership and, and different points of view. The, the, the FBI held on to... Uh, uh, terrible ideas as the nation moved beyond it. Remember, you, you, you could only be a male. You had to wear black shoes and white shirts, and it was kind of the, the equivalent of IBM, uh, uh, who had you know, mandatory dress code, uh, and you, you curried favor and you got increased by crime stats. And, and he became far more concerned about embarrassing the agency, so he ignored organized crime, denied it existed, and concentrated on bank robberies because the banks were federally insured and you could clear bank robberies and the crime stats looked good. And, and it, was, it was safe. He wouldn't get involved in drugs because he was afraid there was so much money 
in drugs, that it would uh, uh, corrupt his agents. He didn't want a corrupted agent. And, and there were other federal agencies. Uh, but, but BNDD was created because the FBI wouldn't do it. And, and, and he, he really allowed organized crime to, to grow and, and, and fester uh, without involvement. I mean, it was it, it, history's view of the later years of J. Edgar Hoover is, is very harsh. The view within the White House at the time was you couldn't work with him. He wouldn't do, he, he, you know, it, it just, you, you, you didn't want to involve the FBI because involving the FBI meant it got reported directly to Hoover, and Hoover would pick up the phone and call Nixon. And, you know, we had systems to, to prevent that. So you, you couldn't have open discussion. Ehrlichman, I think, was a brilliant choice to head the Domestic Council. He was an open mind. Uh, he's been denigrated savagely over Watergate, but he felt he wasn't involved at all and, and could be confrontational in return. We were not bound by any constraint in our concept of public policy. We, there was the Marijuana Commission. We debated within the staff with our experts, with the treatment people, about whether we should give up and legalize it, what, what would happen. It wasn't that we couldn't go there. We could go any place we wanted on intellectual inquiry and debate and gather facts. Other people on the White House staff that worked for Bob Haldeman or Henry Kissinger, because I see it as three. You, were, you worked ultimately for one of the three. You could have been a fourth-tier person, but mm. one of the three. They'd hang around outside Ehrlichman's office to run into him in the hallway to share an idea because John was the only person who could look at an idea and have it staffed. Uh, as, as we said, our job was to get the government out of the way of good ideas. So it was intellectually open and intellectually honest. And, and I think you will find to a person, his staff adored him. I mean, that it was, it was fun to work there. You were not uh, denigrated. You worked hard, but uh, uh, your input was respected and, and, uh, and you know, you, did, you had to do quality work or you didn't stay. But uh, uh, it was, it was a, an adventure, a, a, a quest to figure out the proper role for government and, and how it functioned in a free society. Um, what happened in the marijuana? Well, we know that marijuana was not uh, legalized. Um, yes, that's true. But, uh, I mean, how close, how ripe was that issue? Uh, well, I remember, uh, remember, I was law enforcement, and I was talking with Jerry Jaffe. Jerry was head of treatment, head of the Special Action mm -hmm. Office for Drug Abuse Prevention. You know, what about this? And he said, look, uh, we could do it. Uh, uh, it's not overtly harmful. It's harmful. But we, we have two other things that are e certainly equal, smoking and drinking. But I'll tell you this, if we legalize it, we'll never get rid of it. It will become the third uh, uh, narcotic or, or drug that we tolerate. And there's no reason to expand from two, because the two are bad, to expand to a third. It is entirely possible this is a fad, that it has to do with rebellion 
against the government, against the Vietnam War, and that this will pass. But if we legalize it, it won't. Now, the Marijuana Commission was coming in under Governor Schaefer, and, and they had a report. Well, Nixon didn't want the report. He didn't want the publicity because the Marijuana Commission was ambivalent. And so the real issue was, what do we do? You know, here these people are. And the resolution, it's so typical of how the White House works and how a president works. The president met with Governor Schaefer, brought the cameras in. He presented the report. The president didn't meet with a full commission. It was just one of those things that happened. He did something else more important that day, so it wasn't the lead story on the news. It was never heard from again. The report was never heard from again. It was just, thank you, we've accepted it. Uh, any, any more good ideas? And that push to legalize went away. There's still substantial use. There's a there's an ongoing controversy over the medical uses. There's this uh, conflict between state and federal law. Uh, the, the, the issue still sits there, but I don't think the issue boils. I don't think this is a, a huge pressing issue about about which people are willing to to have massive organization and massive parade. It's it's kind of a one of those things where a small group would love to have it. Uh, I think, at least with regard to the Nixon administration, that issue was diffused, uh, partially because at the time it was felt any abuse, any the fun of rebelling, starting with marijuana led into a culture that would guide you to heroin. And heroin was terrible and unthinkable and devastating. Bud has told us about um, some work he did on the problem of drug abuse among soldiers. Yes. And a trip that he takes out to Southeast Asia yes. uh, in 1971. Um, tell us what, what, what staffing you did for him on the drug issue. What did you work on the drug issue? I, I, and then, worked, I worked on enforcement. Uh, the treatment that he did, the use of Jerry Jaffe and the, uh, the, the visits to Vietnam, because you remember it was the, the nightmare of these addicted soldiers returning and being released into society, uh, uh, and they did that under the treatment auspices. Now there's a, another narrow film uh, that uh, Bob DuPont put together that you, that you filmed. Uh, of the folks on the treatment side who had a reunion and, and discussed and debated what they had done, and there's just magnificent footage on that. Uh, I was invited, and I, I show up on the film briefly only to say that because treatment was buttoned up, those of us on the law enforcement side could push as hard as we wanted because treatment was available. And so we were very supportive of a treatment option. It was methadone and methadone mm -hmm. maintenance. Uh, uh, but the, the stuff that you're talking about was all off my watch. It all had to do with, with uh, Jerry Jaffe's expertise uh, and, and he and Bud and Jeff Donfeld. Now, international enforcement was also off your watch. Or did you participate in... Uh, I, I participated some. Uh, uh, we were responsible overall. We harnessed the Department of State. We harnessed the CIA. Uh, uh, the CIA people said, you know, this is really, we're, we're, we're pleased to help because 
most of the stuff we do, you never know whether it worked or not, and if we and we never get credit if it works. But our our uh, operatives love helping suppress the international narcotics trade because it makes their homes safe here, and you know it could be their kid who's shooting up next time. Heroin was not constrained to the ghetto, so we did. At one point, I did all three. After Jeff Donfeld left, I did law enforcement treatment and international suppression. And then Walt Minnick took that over. And initially, Walt worked with me on international. And then he went over to the Office of Management and Budget with a team of people that continued to work on international. Did you work on developing the relationship with Turkey, which not is so all. important? Not at all. I was not involved in that. Uh, uh, that's all Bud. Uh, uh, and after Bud, it's going to be all Walt Minnick. Um, this is an era also when the Golden Triangle is begins, yes. begins discussed and the yes. concern about Southeast Asia as a source, not simply of addicts because of yes. the poor uh, servicemen who would come back with this, but the fact that opium and, and is coming out of there. Yes. I did two trips. Uh, uh, for the most part, I didn't travel. I was paid on-site right memos. Uh, I didn't know the international nearly as well. I took one trip that uh, followed the opium trail through Turkey to France, French connection to the United States. Uh, I'm in the poppy fields uh, of uh, Turkey. Uh, there are pictures of shepherd in the poppy fields. You know, the farmers were taught they were growing medicine. This was a good thing because... Uh, uh, codeine is, is, is even today uh, cannot be faked synthetically and for cough racking, hacking cough, there's nothing better than codeine uh, uh, the difficulty was the government after encouraging everybody to grow uh, opium poppies papavum omniferum uh, they didn't buy up the whole crop and the other folks were willing to buy pay cash and so the, the, the chain started but it was it was the government's fault in the first place. They had too much, too much mm -hmm. gum opium. Uh, that trip occurred coincidental with the Watergate break-in. So the visual proof that Shepard was uninvolved is Shepard in the poppy fields. Uh, and then we went from there to uh, watch the, uh, the uh, labs in, in Marseille and the smuggling coming from there into the United States. A, a separate trip to Southeast Asia to talk to the folks in Southeast Asia who were suppressing. We went into uh, Thailand uh, because that's where the Bermuda, the uh, Golden Triangle came out. And we went up on the border of uh, Burma uh, uh, and where drug enforcement agents are working with Thai military to suppress these warlords who are making all this money off this terribly fertile Opium crop. Uh, are you there when the French connection is busted up? And no, I, I I can't tell you. I've, I've enjoyed the movie, uh, uh, but I, I just can't tell you uh, uh, the dates. Because August, uh, because uh, Bud Krog told us about August Record. Yes. Uh, who was actually in Paraguay. Yes. Uh, but that's not the French connection. Uh, the French connection in the movie comes in yes. from France. Yes. Uh, Auguste Record was the uh, great drug lord of Paraguay, and the guy, boy, it's going to take me a moment to come up with, Nellie Gross. Nelson Gross, uh, uh, active in New Jersey politics, 
was appointed the principal person at the Department of State uh, to negotiate with countries. State was involved and included, and this is under Bud, not under me. But Nelson Gross went down to Paraguay, and, 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 and I think in the most undiplomatic way possible, basically said the government would fall if Auguste Record wasn't turned over to the United States. Uh, he was captured by the Paraguay Army, put on a plane, and we flew him back to try him in the United States. It was uh, extraterritorial. Uh, uh, it's been done before. Uh, when we took, when Reagan took over Panama, uh, Noriega was found, brought to the United States for trial. Uh, it's uh, it's probably a bad precedent, but it certainly disrupted the uh, uh, the. The pipeline coming up from South America. You know, South America, it's uh, not codeine; it's cocaine, yeah. and and it's there's it, the uh, there's massive amounts of it, and it's a, it's become a far more popular drug. And I think uh, today a far greater concern. They're, they're, let me take a step back. This is Shepherd on drugs, which is always scary. The La Brea tar pits. Yes. Uh, when they excavate, you know, that's out in, in uh, Hancock Park mm-hmm. in L.A., and they have the bones of all these mammals who got stuck in the tar pits. And it starts with little animals and then bigger predators, you know, the, the birds and everything get stuck, and then the foxes and the wolves and the coyotes go in to get them, and they get stuck, and then the horses and the uh, mammoths go in. But as they, ex- they excavate the La Brea tar pits, they find the most peculiar phenomenon it comes in waves that it's not a whole bunch of horses, wild horses, or a whole bunch of mammoths. There's a generational gap, and it's almost that the animals could communicate. And if you saw your mom go in and get stuck, you wouldn't go in. But you had real trouble telling your kids. There's lots of things in life that real trouble telling your kids. Well, heroin's like that. In the beginning... There's this, apparently, not having shot up myself, there's this incredible high. And after that, it's people trying to duplicate that first high because it was so phenomenal. But And it doesn't seem like you're going to get addicted, but when you get addicted, it's just terrible. And it, it strings you out. And you, you, in order to maintain your habit, you encourage others to get them addicted and everything else. Well, after a while, everybody sees. And it fades and then people forget, and it comes back. And, and it's possible today that it's coming back, which would just be devastating. Cocaine doesn't seem to do that. It just seems to be here all the time. Difference in drugs. Jeff Shepard is a very serious man.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.